A while back, I told you about the Macintosh Portable, Apple's first failed attempt to make a mobile Mac. What I said at the time was that Apple was fortunate to get a second chance because the company's follow-up to the Mac Portable was one of the most important products it would ever make. This is that product, or rather, these are those products. Because in the fall of 1991, Apple introduced the very first PowerBook models. In solving some very specific needs, Apple managed to define a design so enduring, pretty much every laptop uses it to this day. And today, laptops are far more popular than desktops, making Apple's first mobile success that much more important in the long run. It's 20 Max for 2020. I'm Jason Snell. This is number two, the original PowerBook. It should have been obvious from the very beginning that the final form of the personal computer was going to be portable. The more advanced we could make a computer, the more we wanted to make it work for us, not the other way around. Or to put it in a slightly more theological way, here's Andy Inatko. It's part of that natural trajectory of computing that we continue to increase our dominance over these devices. When you think about it, if you were uh, working on a keyboard on a computer, it's like communing with God. You can't see God. You're not in the physical presence of God. You can say things that you believe that God will hear, and God being like a huge mainframe that's in another building connected by big, big wires. And in my college, there was an unused chapel in the middle of campus, and that was the computing center. So for certain computer science classes, I would have to go to this church, and it's snowing, so I've got like this hooded robe on. <laughs> the number of times I felt like a monk going to the abbey to, to, to see if my God had actually like answered my prayers correctly. When you think about it, in the 60s and 70s, computers were often portrayed as gods. Captain Kirk routinely battled godlike computers. Landrum, a machine. This whole society is a machine's concept of perfection, peace, harmony, but no soul. I am Landrum. You have intruded. Pull out its plug, Mr. Spock. HAL 9000 certainly had the power of life and death over the crew of the Odyssey. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. And I'm always reminded of deep thought. Douglas Adams's creation that would spend seven and a half million years considering the ultimate answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Oh, great computer, the task we have designed you to perform is this. We want you to tell us the answer. Life, the universe, and everything. There is an answer. <gasps> there is an answer. But I'll have to think about it. 
and then we got to the thing where computers are small enough that they can be on a desktop. You're definitely sharing it between other people, but you can actually acknowledge its physicality and its presence. Then they got so that you could have your own computer. You don't have to have a computer that you have to share with everybody else in the family. Then you go to laptops, meaning that you don't have to go to the computer anymore. The computer can go with you. And now we're at wearables where we surround our computers with our hands as we're using them. They are part of our personal space now. Here's John Syracuse. Being tied to a desk is a limitation that is undesirable by most people. Why would you want that? The computer should serve my needs, and my needs aren't anchored to a desk. And so it's no wonder that laptops became the dominant form. Back in the early 90s, you could have your own computer, but you couldn't take it with you. Laptops were beginning to change that, but Apple had to grapple with some very specific issues. Most notably, to use the Mac's graphical user interface, or GUI, you needed a pointing device. You could not navigate by keyboard alone. The Mac Portable had placed a trackball next to the keyboard, but the PowerBook just couldn't afford that extra width. Here's Harry McCracken. Laptops had been around for close to a decade in the DOS world, but they were still pretty exotic. They, generally speaking, were not your primary computer. They were not designed to run a graphical interface and use a pointing device at all. And I think a lot of people just didn't quite understand why you would want one. And the PowerBook made that a lot more clear. If, if you had looked at PC laptops before this, they would fill the whole bottom part with their keyboard. And the Mac just couldn't do that because what are you going to do? Tell people they have to use a mouse on the leg of their pants or something? You need a pointing device. The PC's answer to this by this point was to have pointing devices that you would sort of clip onto the side of your laptop and you'd use them. But Apple did what they had to do. And it, when faced with this problem, I said, yeah, push the keyboard back, put the pointing device in front of it. You could imagine a PC laptop user looking at this and saying, look at how Apple has had to modify the traditional laptop design. Boy, isn't it a pain if your only interface is a GUI, you have to find a place for this pointing device. But obviously, even though it took many years for people to realize GUIs were the future, and this basic design of what a laptop looks like endures to this day. This is the iPhone moment for laptops. Apple had arrived on the elemental design for this entire product category, and whether PC laptop makers knew it or not, eventually all laptops would look like this. Everybody was trying to make Windows work well on a laptop back then and not really succeeding. I remember reviewing machines, and they would come with a clamp-on external trackball, which was super clumsy, just because up until that time frame, every laptop had been designed to run text-based interfaces. And the Windows folks were trying to sort of retrofit a graphical interface onto a machine designed to run DOS, whereas Apple started with a blank slate and um, created a laptop designed to run the Mac operating system. And after having not done well with the Mac Portable, they really got it right the second time around. Turns out everyone needed a pointing device, and it turned out this is the place where you put the pointing device. Anything other than this seems just fundamentally wrong. And... Very few people, except for old school Mac users, know you know where that design came from? Yeah, Apple. Apple did that with this one line of computers, which, by the way, was a great line of laptops. They really were great. Not just groundbreaking, but great. Apple managed to make the PowerBook small enough and light enough while still keeping it a fully functional Mac. The PowerBook may have been the first laptop that was easy enough to use to reach a huge new audience who had never really seen the value in personal computers before. The 1990s were an era where mobile devices weren't in every lecture hall, weren't in every coffee shop like they are today. 
power books turned up in places where you had literally never seen a computer before. It wasn't that long between the original Mac and this first one, but it seemed like an eternity. And the eternity that had defined the Mac was it was a computer that you put on a desk and you plug in and you have a keyboard and a mouse or whatever. And to be able to do that same thing somewhere other than the desk where the computer was, was almost ridiculous seeming. And just you'd, you'd have that smile on your face, that giddy joy of like, I'm using my Mac, but I'm not in front of my Mac. I'm anywhere. I'm on a park bench. I'm in a library. It's just wherever you were, it, it felt like you were getting away with something. And you don't really get that nowadays uh, because everyone assumes everything is portable and it's just the assumed nature. It's something when you, I don't have to take myself out of my own headspace. Wherever I want to be, I can express myself, get things done in the way that I want to because I can take this thing with me. That's something that's hard to impress upon people who weren't there when it happened. How it kind of felt like you were getting away with something or like it was a stunt. You were giddy with excitement about the idea of even doing this. Because on the screen, through that little portal, it was 100% a Mac. It wasn't like a weird portable version of the operating system. There was no limits. It was a Mac. And you're like, but I'm not attached to anything. I can do this wherever I want, but it's a Mac. This is an important point. Apple didn't skimp on the PowerBook. During this era, a lot of PC laptops were designed to be secondary systems, devices that always needed to come back home and sync up with a real computer that lived on your desk. The PowerBook could stand alone. It was almost as powerful as its desktop equivalent and worked with all the peripherals, though some of them required adapters. When I was in graduate school, I replaced my Mac SE with a PowerBook. It was absolutely transformative. All of a sudden, I could write anywhere. And by right, I very specifically mean typing into a word processor. You would not want to see my handwriting. Before I had that power book when I needed to write, I had to go home or I had to go to the newsroom when I was in graduate school and it was full of DOS PCs running WordPerfect. Gross. Once I got that power book, I had a Mac that wasn't only better than my Mac SE in every conceivable way, but it was one that came with me in my backpack. Especially coming after the Mac Portable, they were great machines for their time. They were elegant, stylish, powerful, not too big. <laughs> they weren't 16 pounds. They did not have lead-acid batteries. They had a high-quality feel. Even the innovation of the trackball, having two buttons where you could hit the one closer to the spacebar with your thumb while fingers were still on the keyboard. While the PowerBook 100 series was groundbreaking, I want to drop a little footnote here. I'm not here in particular to praise the PowerBook 100 model itself. As I discussed in the episode about the Mac Portable, the PowerBook 100 looks more or less like the PowerBook 140 and 170, but it's actually a miniaturized Mac Portable designed by Sony. It had its fans, but internally it was nothing like the other PowerBooks. It didn't really sell well, and it disappeared pretty quickly. Though someone I know pretty well did buy one, and his attachment to it says a lot about how inviting these devices into our personal spaces makes us attached to them in ways we wouldn't to a desktop computer. The PowerBook 100 wasn't a really big seller. It was the thinner, lighter one. This was like the rental car version of the PowerBook. And so they discontinued them, and I guess they did some sort of an experiment. They, they decided to, disc to remainder them off at a super cheap discount through Price Club. I had this little window of opportunity available to me. The only Price Club store that was even in New England was all the way the hell down in Rhode Island. And so I did this crazy thing where I was like up all night and like, you know what? They're, they're going to sell out really quickly at this price. It's like 50% off, and it's barely what I can afford, but I can afford it. 
if I leave at four in the morning, I can be there when the store opens, quickly buy it, get back in the car, drive all the way back on no sleep and be back in time for my shift. It's one of the stupid things you do when you're like 18 or 19 years old. I decided to drive a long distance on the on highway speeds uh, on practically no sleep and even less than no sleep on the way back. But I did get my PowerBook 100 and I took a nap under my desk in the 45 minutes before I was actually had to be on duty. And it was one of those magical things that seems like an adventure when it, you're trying to get a Mac that you can't really afford. I still have it. I hand off my old desktops to people in the family and friends who need them. But I have never given away, thrown away, sold, or anything my daily use PowerBooks and MacBooks. I still have all of them because they're just way too personal items. I really think it's cool that when you look at it and you rake light against the, the side of the keyboard, you can see the vowel keys on the home row are polished like mirror bright. And that was my fingertips writing like five, six, seven thousand words a day for years that scrubbed and polished that to a mirror bright finish. It's just too personal an object. You have such emotional mojo invested in it that if I don't have to get rid of it, I'm not going to. It was the first power book that I actually named Lilith. Now I'm on Lilith 16. If it occurs to me that its name is Lilith, then it's absolutely its name is Lilith. That's not silly at all. It has a name. B.B. <laughs> King has Lucille. I have Lilith. Which brings me back around to the inevitability of the personal computer becoming as personal as possible. In a remote location attached via a terminal, they're like submitting questions to God. Anchored on a desk, they're only available when we go to them. But once they're in your bag, that personal computer works for you, goes where you want, does your bidding. Put stickers on it if you like. Give it a name if you want. It's your traveling companion. Rock stars have guitars, and you have your laptop. The PowerBook might not have been the first, but it definitely changed the relationship between human beings and their computers forever. Twenty Max for Twenty Twenty was written by me, Jason Snell. My thanks to Andy Anako, John Syracuse, and Harry McCracken. Brian Hamilton provided post production help, and I'll be back next week with number one.